Last time we spoke about Admiral Yamamoto's Operation Igo. The Empire of the Rising Sun had to do something about the Allied advance up the Solomons and New Guinea. Yamamoto devised a grand counter-air offensive to hinder the construction of Allied air bases in the region. However, this was not 1941, it was 1943 and the Japanese aviation crews and pilots were not the same men they once were. The war was taking its toll on the effectiveness of Japan's air power and it was showcased during Operation Igo. Despite the wild claims of the pilots who would have Japan's leadership believe they had shot down every Allied aircraft in existence, the reality was that they had only inflicted enough damage to set back the Allied timetable for about 10 days. Unbeknownst to the Japanese, the Allied cryptanalysts were continuing to break their codes and found out some fateful information about the mastermind behind Operation Igo. But today you need to grab your onions because we're talking about the Chindits. This episode is the return of the Chindits. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I've just now finished up a multi-part series on China's warlord era. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. This week's exclusive podcast episode is on General Kanji Ishiwara, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. For a few weeks, we have been covering what basically can be described as the major strategic shift during the Pacific War. I know I repeat it so often, but the Battle of Guadalcanal was the real turning point of the Pacific War. It led the Allies to grab the initiative for the rest of the war, and as a result, the Japanese were forced to take a defensive stance. The taking of Guadalcanal and that of Bunagona Sanananda led to a lot of shuffling for both sides. And with all of that shuffling came heavy losses and resources being forcefully allocated to certain areas at the cost of others. Now up in the frigid northern waters of the North Pacific, the six-hour battle of the Kamandorsky Islands had nearly ended in an American debacle. If Admiral Hosogaya had pressed his advantage, he would have most likely destroyed the Salt Lake City alongside several other warships. But as we have seen, the high explosive shell fired by a single man had prompted Hosogaya to falsely believe American air forces were attacking him, and he decided to pull out. Hosogaya's conservative decision was condemned by his superiors, and he was forced into retirement as a result. Admiral McMorris's force suffered damage to three ships and he lost seven men. But he walked away, and the Japanese convoy failed its mission. It was to be Japan's last attempt to resupply the Atu and Kiska garrisons with surface ships. All future runs would have to be done via submarine. 
Thus, the success of Admiral Kincaid's daring blockade had sealed the fate of the Japanese garrisons on the two islands. Yet before the Americans could begin invading these two islands, they needed to perform basically the exact same type of strategy their colleagues were doing in the South Pacific. They needed to secure advanced bases and island hop their way to the west. One of the first major moves came when Admiral Kincaid and General Buckner made the joint decision to move the Army, Navy, and Air Force's headquarters out to Adak. Adak was a thousand miles nearer to the enemy, but concentrating so much on the island created its own type of problems. A year prior, there had only been about 5,000 people in the Aleutians. Now, there was nearly 40,000. The bottleneck became so severe Buckner's soldiers were being supplied with just 10 rounds of ammunition per weapon, and food rations were quite limited. The men were living off canned vegetables and the occasional shiploads of foul-smelling mutton from New Zealand. Mutton in general was notably not very loved amongst American forces. Australians took notice of this as Americans began to complain in Australia that they were tired of eating it all the time. Actually, a hilarious rumor emerged amongst the Americans in Australia that General Douglas MacArthur owned a sheep ranch and he was being enriched at their expense. Yes, I managed to toss another punch at old Dougie. Medical problems began to emerge in the Aleutians as many American bodies began to reject the environment. That is polite talk for Americans can't handle a little bit of cold. Lingering head colds became so bad, the men began to refer to it as the Aleutian malaria. I mean, I do get it. Snow can suck. The cold sucks. Waking up at 6am to record this podcast only to look out my window at what is becoming hours of shoveling of my driveway sucks. Canadian Problems 101 as for the United States Navy, the North Pacific Submarine Force had spent the first few months of Kincaid's command simply gathering strength, building up enough to make a final push, but not doing anything too exciting. A new PT boat squadron had been assembled employing the Higgins model. Now, I don't know about all of you, but the idea of being on a tiny PT boat in the Aleutians sounds absolutely horrifying. If you might recall, in January, four PT boats led by one Lieutenant Clinton McKellar had departed King Cove to sail for Dutch Harbor. They sailed through a squall coated with four inches of ice. The four boats made it to the nearest harbor, Dora Harbor, on Unimac, and they were stuck there for nearly a week. While they were anchored there, they were bashed around by howling 80-knot winds, and PT-27 smashed into some jagged rocks, PT-28 went aground and sank, PT-22 crashed on a reef and sank, but McKellar was able to keep his crews intact. The two surviving boats had to be rescued some days later by a tender named the Virginia E. The devastating experiences of McKellar's men led to this new squadron of PT boats being outfitted with some hot air heaters. To compare to the PT boat crew's miseries, the experience of the pilots in the Lucians was not any better. Butler lost 11 planes due to bad weather in January alone. The weather improved in February, allowing for some missions, but they were hampered terribly by technological issues. The B-28 Liberators constantly had their bomb bay racks mechanisms freeze on them. Thus, the bombing missions half of the time went a bust. Now, Admiral Kincaid suggested an attack on Kiska in January of 1943. The plan found its way to the Casablanca Conference in North Africa, where President FDR, Sir Winston Churchill, and the Allied Combined Chiefs of Staff hammered out the finer details. 
Kincaid's plan to attack Kiska actually managed to become an item debated during the conference. The Allied leaders approved it and sent it over to the United States Joint Chiefs of Staff to develop it into a real operation, which became codenamed Operation Landcrab. The task was handed over to General John D. Witt, who recommended using the 35th Infantry Division, but the War Department decided instead to use the Southwestern 7th Motorized Division. However, this division was trained in desert warfare. The rationale for this was due to Rommel's recent defeat and the lack of a need for desert-trained troops in Europe. Well, obviously, the desert tactics, nor the tanks, trucks, or other armored vehicles were of much use in the Aleutians. The entire division required training in Arctic amphibious operations, which would take another three months. Huh. Imagine that you spent like months on months doing specific training for desert warfare, only to be told, hey, you're going to uh, the Aleutians, now you gotta train doing this. That must have really sucked. Luckily, amphibious assault specialists like Major General Holland Howland Mad Smith, Colonels Kastner, Erickson, Alexander, and Carl Jones were accustomed to the Aleutian Theater and helped retrain the 7th Division at Los Angeles. By February, Washington had assigned an insufficient number of ships for the invasion of Kiska. This prompted Kincaid to suggest instead of attacking Kiska, to simply bypass her and hit Attu. Attu was believed to only have a garrison of around 500 men, and Kincaid believed seizing Attu, well, it was just west of Kiska. It would probably prompt the Japanese to abandon Kiska. Thus Operation Landcrab was greenlit and ready to go, and all the major commanders of the theater would meet at a conference in San Diego to hash out the finer details as I had mentioned. The San Diego conference quickly deteriorated into a series of arguments between some new commanders, Rear Admiral William Ward Smith and Vice Admiral Francis Warren Rockwell, and the experienced Alaskan leaders Buckner and DeWitt. They squabbled over reconnaissance issues. In truth, the Americans did not actually have a good picture of the Western Aleutians. Buckner pointed out that the Navy, Army, and Air Force had four different sets of map coordinates and asked the issue to be rectified. This led the Alaska scout leader, Colonel Kastner, to urge Major General Albert Ager Brown, who would be commanding the 7th Infantry Division, to perform a reconnaissance personally. Brown, however, did not do this. Furthermore, Buckner requested they employ a battalion of his ground forces for the operation to improve their low morale. Rockwell argued his shipping capacity was already overstretched, leading DeWitt to assign the commercial ship Perita to take Buckner's troops into the battle. Rockwell then complained the commercial ship would not be able to land his troops quickly enough to protect them if the enemy decided to resist the landings, prompting Brown to throw it right back at him, stating that the addition of these troops just disrupted the entire mission. So as you can see, it's a lot of dick-waving. In the end, they reached a compromise. They were going to hold Buckner's 4th Regiment in reserve at Adak, ready to ship out in less than a day to hit Atu if needed. On April the 18th, reconnaissance revealed that there was at least 1,600 Japanese on Atu, prompting Rockwell to commit the entire 7th Division, 10,000 men in all, including the extra 4th Regiment for Operation Landcrab. Now before the men hit the island, Rockwell sent a small team of combat specialists to come up behind the Japanese to prevent them from falling back into the mountains where they could probably hold out for a few weeks or even months. Captain Willoughby's scout battalion, 410 officers and men, trained vigorously in a short amount of time for the operation. They replaced all of the rifles and submachine guns with automatic rifles, machine guns, and soft lead bullets for armor-piercing bullets as they could penetrate ice without ricocheting. 
The men's packs were also filled to the brim with grenades. Meanwhile, General Butler began a bombing campaign to soften up the island. A terrible storm prevented air raids during the first half of April, seeing winds hit 150 miles per hour and gusts of over 127. Nonetheless, over 1,175 combat sorties would be made in April, with over 4,000 pounds of bombs falling on that too. Though it should be mentioned, most of the bombers dropped their loads blind, as Atu was covered in a thick fog the entire time. And finally, on April the 24th, the 7th Division departed San Francisco at 1pm aboard five transports. The Aleutian campaign was soon coming to an end, but now we need to grab our onions and travel back to Burma to talk about good old Wingate and the boys. Back in Burma, Wingate's forces were beginning the last phase of Operation Longcloth fleeing for their goddamn lives back to India. Now Fort Hertz and the new Lido Road had been protected. At his headquarters in Wuntho, Wingate had to make a choice, retire back to India or press on and cross the Irrawaddy. Being Wingate, he chose to press on with the Japanese hot on the Chindits trail. Now I do apologize, I believe this will be the second time I'm rehashing most of the Chindits story. Not to really bore you with the details of how the Pacific War series works, and I'm talking about the YouTube series, but for some reason, um, the other uh, writer who writes the majority of these episodes, by the way, he broke up the Chindit's experience into three episodes, but it honestly only required about a single episode as far as the story is concerned. So, uh, for example, while the events take uh, a few weeks to unfold for the Operation Longcloth, Actually telling that story could have been done in a single episode. And to make matters worse, when I do these podcasts, I like to expand, of course, on the material. And the first time we talked about the Chindits, I almost told the entire story. I do apologize. So I'm kind of just going to do a brutal summary of things that have already happened. And then we're going to finish off the story. 